We are living in the era of cancel culture, says Greg Lukianoff, the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expressional Fire. He's been at the forefront of so many free speech controversies over the past 25 years, and if you've ever caught yourself considering the consequences before expressing an opinion, or if you've read about universities cancelling guest speakers for unpopular content, you'll be aware of the problem. He says we live in an era where good arguments matter less than who is making them. And he uses hard data and research about what cancel culture is on both sides of the political spectrum and how we can all be more open-minded in his new book, which he's co-written with Ricky Schlott. It's called The Cancelling of the American Mind. Cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution, is the subtitle. And Greg Lukianoff joins me now. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to talk to you. And and I want to maybe put the, the first and, and probably most common objection to this whole idea to you, which is that... Hey, when people talk about cancel culture, they're just talking about consequence culture. They're right. just talking about people who've lived for centuries without any consequences for what they're doing and the views they're expressing and um, had that, another favorite word, privilege, uh, finally getting mm-hmm. the consequences they deserve. And, and, and what is the answer to that? I, when I hear consequence culture or accountability culture, it generally means that someone doesn't know a lot about the topic. They're not particularly curious to look into what actually will get you in trouble, canceled, um, and that they're just going to sort of lazily assume that everyone who got canceled had it coming. And there's no way you can finish my book, Canceling the American Mind, and say that because there are so many people. There's going to be an opinion you agree with that ruins someone's career uh, somewhere in there, whether it's from the right or the left. So I do think that uh, consequence culture is one of those things where it just assumes uh, everybody saying horrible things who gets punished and everybody who, who gets punished had it coming. And that's simply not true. You surveyed people and 84% said they don't speak freely in everyday situations for fear of retaliation. I guess that suggests Mm -hmm. that that's 84% of people who have ideas that deserve consequences, or maybe there is another um, explanation for that. Yeah, I mean, that's unhealthy for democracy if if, if 84% of of people are are not actually being honest or authentic. And sometimes people go, oh, what self-censorship is good. And you have to understand that the question we ask and the way we actually ask this is we're not just talking about people being polite. We're talking about people actively hiding what they believe because they believe they can't be authentic anymore. And that's that's not healthy. Not necessarily hiding racist or misogynistic or transphobic beliefs or opinions, we should point out. Yeah, I mean, 84 percent. I don't think 84 percent of the population has (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> those, those kind of beliefs. Okay. Um, to the book, and your last book with Jonathan Haidt, who was, uh, has been a guest on our show, was called The Coddling of the American Mind. It was all about how modern parenting practices turn Gen Z kids into emotionally fragile people incapable of hand- handling conflict. And, and speaking of consequences, is this new book basically about the consequences of that? It, it, it is to a degree. Coddling and Canceling had to be substantially different books because in Coddling of the American Mind, um, and I, we were genuinely explaining something that we thought was 
as we said in the um, uh, in the subtitle, uh, good intentions and bad ideas. Basically, like people who really are compassionate and want to be good to their kids, but they're actually um, accidentally teaching them uh, mental habits that will make them anxious and depressed. That's the the major theme of the book. Whereas with cancel culture, it started right around the same time. All all of this kind of traces to when Gen Z started hitting um, uh, higher ed in large numbers that we really noticed it, and it tends to follow um, that uh, that generation along. But there's a uh, one thing that does make necessarily canceling a little different is even though it's often justified by sort of an abstraction of social justice and a, and a, a specific person, um, and not necessarily a specific person who might be hurt, it justifies a great deal of cruelty to actual flesh and blood people in the real world. There, there sometimes can be an almost like carnival-like experience when, when you watch someone getting canceled on social media, uh, that essentially people are kind of having fun with ruining this person's life. So I think that uh, there's a great Aldous Huxley quote that talks about if you want to create a movement, um, give people the opportunity to be cruel to another person, but feel self, uh, self-righteous self in doing that. Hmm. You, I want to talk about the great untruths. Uh, there were three in the original book. There's a fourth yes. one in this one. Um, but it, actually reading over them, it reminded me of something you, I think you tweeted about a few months ago. And you were talking about therapy. And lots of our listeners will have done therapy and, and will be familiar yep. with what you learn me in too. therapy. Um, you learn about new ways to look at the world, which makes you suffer less, which makes you less likely to be anxious um, or catastrophize, etc. You observed that actually everything we are teaching young people in universities and, and teaching them culturally are basically the opposite of the stuff you learn in therapy. Can you, can you explain that idea to us a bit? Sure. And this came, this was something that, um, an idea I developed after I got suicidally depressed uh, back in 2007. I was actually hospitalized as a danger to myself. Um, and uh, what saved me in the end was um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, that's something that if you're if you're suicidal, it's too too late for that. Get you know, go go get help. Go get yourself checked in. So I want to be very clear about that. But over the preceding year, I studied CBT, um, and cognitive behavioral therapy is uh, teach teaches you the habit, and you have to do it. You can't just intellectually know it that when you have exaggerated thoughts in your head, like, a, like I always give the example of if a date goes wrong and instead of being like, Oh, that was unfortunate. You say to yourself, I'm going to die alone. Um, <laughs> she hated me. I, I like, like all, all this kind of stuff. And those are all called what's called cognitive distortions. They're, they're normal, um, very common mental exaggerations in your head that will, if not addressed, will make you miserable. <laughs> will make you anxious. And what was amazing about doing CBT and you have to do it for a long time is that all these little voices in my head that would tell me I was broken or doomed or like whatever, they just didn't sound convincing after a while. And that was a really, that that was a, that changed my life. While I'm learning this though, I'm watching what's going on on campus and I'm like, are we telling young people to catastrophize, to negatively filter, filter out all the good stuff? Are we telling them to uh, mind read that people are actually out to get them? Are we telling them to, uh, to, to uh, fortune tell, which is say, you know, that you're doomed? And it seemed like on campuses from at least 2007 to 2013, that's what the adults were saying, but the students were rightfully rolling their eyes at it. But then right around 2014, we started having a lot of students coming to campus who were rationalizing 
deplatforming, new speech codes, et cetera, on the basis of what sounded to my ear very much like cognitive distortions. Like they're, 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 in the name of emotional reasoning, I, th I think you need to do the following things. So Haidt and I, we talked about it in 2014, and then we wrote an, an article in 2015, making the argument that this new attitude among students is going to be disastrous for academic freedom. It's going to be disastrous for free speech on campus, but it's also going to be disastrous for the mental health of people who believe it, because it's all based on the kind of cognitive distortions that will make you miserable. And unfortunately, Haidt and I were not right, just right on that, that we, we thought we'd see a little scholarly dip in mental health among young people, but instead it's a cliff. It, it, it's been absolutely terrifying watching what's happened to the mental health of young people over the last, you know, seven years. Yeah, in fact, new research out from uh, Height and uh, his colleague uh, today, suicide rates are up for Gen Z right across the English-speaking world, and especially for girls. That's a, a topic we've um, talked about. So to the three great untruths, and, and reading from your book here, the three great untruths are ideas that are so bad, so wrong, so contrary to ancient wisdom and modern psychology that if any young person embraces all three, they are practically guaranteed to be unhappy and unsuccessful. And those great untruths are, one, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Two, always trust your feelings. And three, life is a battle between good people and evil people. That's that black and white thinking, uh, as, as cognitive behavioral therapy calls it. Um, what is the fourth untruth that you've added for this book, and why did you add it? We, we just added a single great untruth uh, for, for the new book because we thought it kind of tied a lot of the problems we're seeing in the way we argue together. And that is um, no bad person has any good opinion. And then usually parentheses and all people are arguably bad. Because if you look at the way we debate things on American campuses, at least, and certainly on social media, a lot of what we're really trying to do is not refute the actual argument someone's making but show how that person is in some sense bad or not worthy of listening to or fit to ignore. And, but so people even look into things that people wrote, you know, 15 years ago that they look into, you know, have, have they been you know, faithful spouses? They, they, could, they kind of will use anything against you to determine that you're bad in some way and therefore they can move on. And one of, one of the ways in the United States is that, and the right does this by, accusing someone of being woke, uh, which is to say that you're bad and foolish. Um, and of course, the left does this by accusing practically anybody of being conservative, even so far as the American Civil Liberties Union in the US and the New York Times, um, if it sort of uh, suits the tactics of, of the moment. And one thing that I'm trying to do, uh, when me and Ricky are trying to do is to step back a bit and say, okay, this is irrelevant to whether or not someone is right, as, as disturbing as that may seem. Bad people are not always wrong, and good people certainly are not always right. Um, these, these are these are separate things. I always give the example of um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, the more we know about Jean-Jacques Rousseau's actual behavior in his life, he comes off as a awful person. Like he he didn't take he, he gave he gave away to orphanages like the six kids he had with his mistress who he'd never marry even though she wanted to. It's absolutely horrible to his friends, including David Hume. Um, but that doesn't mean his philosophy should be ignored, and I don't believe it should be. Um, I think there are some real insight in there. I, the general will stuff scares me to death, but but <laughs> but the mm -hmm. some of his uh, actual writing on childhood it, it is very worth uh, you know considering. 
So, but, and I think we all intellectually know that someone being a bad person doesn't mean they have no insight or someone being a good person doesn't mean they're especially right, but we act as if it does in the way we argue today. Why? Because it's a tactic for, as we say in the book, winning arguments without actually winning arguments. That is um, defeating someone, so to speak, uh, in, in a rhetorical battle without even having to address their ideas. Yes. Taking a shortcut, there was a term I came across in an interview a few months ago, steel manning an argument, um, and it actually reminded yes. me of something that we used to do at um, the philosophy class at uh, Philosophy 101 at university, which is um, if you are arguing against somebody, you should not take the weakest version of their argument and, and shut that down. You should take the strongest yes. version of their argument. Um, and if you win, then, of course, the win will be that much more powerful. As, as part of the problem with rejecting speech you don't agree with, that it's just a shortcut to actually having to think through the argument and, and come up with a, a really watertight and robust opinion of your own. Uh, absolutely. And one of the things that I think sets the book apart from a lot of other books about some, some of the craziness of the past, you know, say five or seven years, is that we really get into cancel culture um, as a just the most extreme way to sort of dodge arguments because if you can make someone afraid for the job or for that matter get them fired from you know the newspaper they work for that's silencing them in a way that it's public that's going to scare the daylights out of everyone else to to just shut up if if they have um, you know something a controversial opinion even even ones that might be as uh, as popular as just you know voting Republican, <laughs> um, which is you know half the country for goodness sakes. Yeah, or when I heard uh, that person is Republican adjacent, which maybe they don't vote yeah. Republican, but they're friends with Re Republicans, and and so uh, that's a reason adjacent. Should, yeah, yeah, and so we we go through we we go through what we call the um, uh, obstacle course, which are basically just standard logical fallacies, like um, in, uh, like a. Uh, loaded questions, appeals to authority, all that kind of stuff, uh, just accusations of, of bad faith. Then we go to the, we, we, uh, and these are the ones that the right and left use. Um, and then we go to what we call the minefield, which is the more uh, social media age kind of ad hominem, um, all purpose attacks on people, calling them a grifter, for example. Um, and, but then we move on to what we call the perfect rhetorical fortress on the right, which is uh, sorry, the perfect rhetorical fortress on the left and the efficient rhetorical fortress on the right. Yeah. Now, on the right, we call it efficient because it's just it's just four stages. You can dismiss someone if you call them a liberal, even if they're not. You can dismiss journalists, experts, and for the MAGA crowd, if they don't support Trump. And what's funny, the people might be surprised to hear this about coddling the American mind. We received the most hate mail from Republicans for that book. Because apparently in our explanation of Charlottesville, which we were completely right about, by the way, the uh, Unite the Right rally uh, that, that happened, um, we were not, in their opinion, fair to Trump. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we have we have uh, several chapters where we where we talk about cancel culture on the right. But the perfect rhetorical fortress on the left, because it grew up in academia, is just layer after layer after layer of ways to not have to address the substance of right. someone's argument. And we even take people and all the way through what we call the demographic funnel, where, where, where and we give examples of people being like, you shouldn't have an opinion on this because you're white. You should have you should have opinion on this because you're cis. You shouldn't have opinion on this because you're straight. And we get down to, to when you follow that, the, the demographic uh, filter down, down, 
you get down to about 0.9% of the United States. So you've already done this amazing rhetorical trick where you can you have a way to run out the clock or not listen to about 99.1% of the population. Then, of course, you can accuse the rest of being conservative. So you're, you're, you're at 100%. But what's amazing right after that step is that even if you are in that 0.9%, even if you, so you're like a, a, a trans, a non-white trans person, you will still be dismissed if you have the wrong opinion. And right. actually, in some cases, you'll be dismissed even more forcefully because you'll be told you have internalized transphobia, internalized uh, misogyny, internalized racism. And we quote the um, young, uh, brilliant uh, Black scholar, um, uh, Coleman Hughes, who talks about this experience of being at Columbia and having people, he says, you know, I'm constantly being told that the most important uh, thing for my opinion on certain topics is the color of my skin. But then when I have a dissenting opinion that doesn't conform to what they expect it to be, I get told I'm not really black. And every single um, conservative, black conservative that we knew, a black conservative author that we knew, and a lot of black uh, moderates, including people like John McWhorter, um, at the New York Times, they all said, oh, yeah, oh, this totally happens. And it's like, that's perfect. Like, ba basically, like, so either you have the quote unquote right opinion, or you're somehow magically not black. And it's usually white people accusing them, by the way. So and this is all very well, if these tactics and this, um, the power of cancel culture, and some of these rhetorical devices that you're talking about, are working in the aid of the values we all agree on, like justice and equity and, and so forth. But there's a pretty strong argument that they're working against those interests. And, and I think that might be where some people feel they want to depart from um, some of these ideas if they're not actually doing the job that they're setting out to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the points that we make is that what could we be doing instead of having arguments where we don't actually get to the substance, where, if, where, where we're acting like partisans with our war hats on, just trying to defeat the other party in, in ways that have nothing to do with what they're actually saying. Um, and what we could be doing is solving things. I, I think I, I've, I've suggested that um, maybe social media platforms need a stream inside of them in which there are rules like classic debate rules, where essentially you, you, you focus on the argument, not the person, because we have all these additional voices um, in uh, in the public square now. Like it, it's been incredibly disruptive. Social media has been so disruptive because it brought a billion new people to the global conversation. And there's no way that wouldn't be insanely uh, disruptive. <laughs> but in the meantime, we're wasting it on cancel culture and cat videos. I, I love cat videos, <laughs> to be clear. But it but we could be using those extra voices to actually be like, okay, what could actually fix this? Let, let, let's run this through the gauntlet of opinion, actually have a, try to have a fair argument and argue t towards truth. What does the solution look like? The, uh, the final third of your book is devoted to it. I, I suspect it includes starting with raising resilient children, children who can tolerate disagreement. Absolutely. Yeah, that's something that... Um, uh, all of the suggestions we had in Coddling the American Mind apply, and but and then some. Uh, when it comes to kind of like what are the values that could bring us out of this, we make the point that a lot of them are well represented by old-fashioned American idioms that I grew up with, but uh, my co-author is only 23, didn't. She never, she just didn't hear these things regularly. Things like, to each their own, everyone's entitled to their opinion, <laughs> 
Um, it's, you know, even it's a free country. Don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> yeah. All to, to remind people that we already have some sayings that represent a small d democratic values that I don't know everything um, and I should be and I don't have to respect your opinion always, but I respect your right to have your opinion. Um, so that's that's a starting place. But when it comes to kind of deeper solutions, we we cover a lot of ground in the book. We talk about we start with parenting, then we go to potential K through 12 reform and, and what that could actually look like with values that are actually more consistent with an engaged populace that actually tries to you know productively talk to each other. We talk about what corporations can do to stay out of the culture war, to not end up in a situation where you have to fire your best employees because another one of your employees doesn't like their privately held opinion, which does really happen, unfortunately. Mm. And we talk about ways to reform higher ed. And, and since I, I'm the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, but I have a special focus on higher ed my whole career. And I think that now in particular, there's there's opportunities to make meaningful change and reform. And it, But it's not going to be easy, partially because we, we, we have a chapter called the Conformity Gauntlet in the book. And we talk about all the different pressures and filtering that goes on from high school on up, where I, we call them conformity-inducing pressures. And really, for great thinkers, you need non-conformity-inducing pressures. You need, you, you need creativity. You need devil's advocacy. You need thought experimentation. All these things that actually produce more creative ideas, even wrong ideas, because that's what you need. You, you'll never get to really creative, interesting solutions unless you actually have the freedom to engage in idea for you, to, to throw a lot of things out, see what actually might work. What do you think of this other idea? Um, I spoke to Yasha Monk last week. He calls it the insidious lie that we can't understand each other. Um, Bacha Ungasagan has oh, talked yeah. about this as well. They point out, though, we focus a lot on polarization, division, the fact that we are so far apart that actually when yeah. you look at our opinions, there is a lot that we all agree on. It's just that we choose not to focus on that or, or, or we ignore it. Yeah. Well, th that's an interesting distinction. And there's there's something, um, there's actual polarization and then there's effective polarization. And effective polarization, in my opinion, is the one that actually matters more. And effective polarization is about whether or not you hate someone over your differences. Right. So when you look at the actual polling, yeah, Americans are closer together th th than we think on any number of issues. We're not actually that far apart. To be, unfortunately, we've gotten further apart over the past 10 years, um, and I think that's partially due to the sort of pressure of effective polarization. But we tend to not, not always hate, but often actually hate each other over these relatively small differences yeah. because it, 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 American politics has turned into a pretty vicious us versus them kind, kind of game. I, I hope that we can have a politics that kind of brings people together. I think we probably need some structural change. I, I, I've come around really to rank choice voting, for example, uh -huh. I think could really help moderate things. And so I, I can think of technical solutions. But first thing, there has to be some will. Um, if we just are determined to hate each other, I don't like the 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 way out of this is going to be ugly. Hey, good chat, and congratulations on the book. It's called The Cancelling of the American Mind. Cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution. Uh, it's been written by Greg Lukianoff, my guest, along with Ricky Schlotz. Uh, and Greg, thank you so much for your time today. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much for having me.